0: Welcome to the Logan Bartlett Show. I am your host, Logan Bartlett. And what you're going to hear on this episode is a conversation I had with Daniel Eck. Daniel is the co-founder and CEO of Spotify, the world's largest music streaming service. Daniel has a really interesting entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Sweden to selling a few companies and making a couple million dollars to ultimately combining two of his biggest passions in the world, both technology and music. And he tells us the stories of how he got the music labels to actually work with him, as well as how the first few million dollars he made did not bring him happiness. This is an amazing conversation with a legendary entrepreneur. a reminder, if you're enjoying these episodes, please do share with your friends so that we can continue to grow and have great guests on in the future. Now, here's Daniel. All right, Daniel, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. I think first, uh, the most important question, and I got this from a bunch of my friends, is who came up with Spotify Wrapped and how did that come to be? Oh, wow. Um, and should that person be the CEO of Spotify? Because that, <laughs> uh, that, that is one of the stickiest products I found uh, out there. Yeah. So
1: hopefully it was you. Yeah, well, no, it, it probably wasn't me. And 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 the truth is, um, you know, this is one where I have um, a lot of problem with the lore of Silicon Valley. Because I think what, what often happens is um, these CEOs are portrayed as sort of demigods, They can do nothing wrong, and and they're uh, larger-than-life personalities. And some of them are, by the way, uh, in terms of their personalities. But um, I often find that usually great ideas are the product of uh, a lot of back and forth by a lot of number of people. Um, And you're kind of constantly honing that idea and evolving it from what may have started out in one concept and actually ended up with something entirely different uh, in the end. So Wrapped's been around, I believe, since 2015. I don't know who came up with it. I think it probably started somewhere in our marketing team um, as an idea. And it's kind of evolved um, since that point quite a lot of times. So the first iteration of it was uh, outside of the product uh, as a one-time standalone campaign. And then it became a recurring thing. Then it became a social a shareable product uh then became integrated into the app um it has kind of evolved over the years and i i don't think i, I th- i'm i'm relatively certain if we would have kept to the original idea it wouldn't have been as successful but it's been more kind of a um a constant evolution uh, that made um the product uh as successful and that's certainly been true almost um I, I think in in, in in the entire Spotify journey, like if you really ask me, sure, did I come up with the original idea? That's true. Uh, but is Spotify today my idea? And the answer is no. It's probably the product of thousands of people's input. And by the way, I, I have talked about this publicly before, but another one of our hit products, Discovery Weekly, that a lot of people love, uh, I actually hated it, uh, and I, I tried to cancel it multiple times, but it kept coming up in our internal hack weeks because people were were uh, really excited about it. And it wasn't, in, in the end, exactly what we shipped. We, we adjusted it. Um, so Discover Weekly wasn't Discover Weekly. It started off as just this uh, Discover playlist, and then it became Discover Weekly, and this whole format of weekly updates became a thing uh, that people uh, started... You know, resonating uh, with. Uh, and I think all of those details ended up making the product that successful. And I, I think that's just a great example of how products happen at Spotify. It's not the product of me. It's not a product of a single individual, but usually it's, it's, it's sort of the back and forth between uh, the entire team, uh, myself included, many times.
0: I do want to talk through the entrepreneurial journey of like what led to Spotify. And so I guess in preparing for this, I heard that you almost went bankrupt and had to and were staring down laying off a large sum of uh your employees before at the last Minute, it sounded like there was. What was it, the acquisition? Was it the acquisition of Skype that kind of unlocked the market? And then you sold the company to eBay. Can, can you talk through like your initial entrepreneurial endeavors at that point? I know as a kid, you you had a bunch of different side hustles in that project. Yeah, but uh, what was that story of of how you know what you were working on and what ultimately came to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I um, I, I don't come from. Um, sort of an entrepreneurial family or, or even a community where, um, being an entrepreneur was something, um, you, anyone I knew did. Um, so it wasn't a big dream of mine to become an entrepreneur. In, in fact, it probably was, uh, the anti of what everyone around me was talking about. So, um, I I sort of accidentally ran into uh, becoming an entrepreneur and and it took me probably 10 years of being an entrepreneur before I started identifying myself as one uh, as well. I just considered it as I was starting things and I had no intention of actually running them or or building these companies myself. I I always envisioned someone else being the front person and someone else uh, running these projects and, and not me. Uh, so I, I considered myself being the tech guy who who was almost like an inventor but definitely not an entrepreneur. Um, and and it was really through a series of kind of accidents um, that um, I ended up starting businesses, but I didn't think of them as businesses, which probably you know ended up becoming the reason why uh, I had to lay people off and, and not understanding um, you know how, how to manage a business as well. And and that later on obviously led me to actually take it more serious, the business side. Um, But I was doing projects that was fun. Um, And um, I I remember I was 14 at the time um, when I was like the one kid in the community that I was in that knew anything about computers. And so naturally, people started gravitating towards me. And this is probably around 1997 now, and uh, the World Wide Web became a thing. And uh, just to set the scene, the World Wide Web at that time was everyone needed to have a web page. That was kind of the norm that was created, and certainly here in Sweden. But creating a web page usually involved having like this very expensive consultancy firm that consultancy firm uh, would charge you like $50,000 to make a web page. So there was all of these small businesses that heard that they needed to create a web uh, page because otherwise they would be irrelevant as businesses, but they obviously couldn't pay $50,000 to do it. So what happened was uh, there was a local business guy who came up to me one day and said, hey, I heard you, you know about computers uh i was wondering if you'd be interested in helping me build a web page um and um i was kind of into coding and and uh, a bunch of that stuff and i thought html was kind of um, simplistic and uh, wasn't that interested and didn't know how to design a web page either so it was just not something that i was very interested in so i kind of turned him down and he kept coming back and he's like well i'd really want you to help me with this and and eventually i i um uh, i figured that the way to get rid of him um and and i didn't want to be rude so i figured i'd just quote him a very high price um so that he'd realize that you know i i, I didn't want to do this and hopefully that would get him to to eventually stop asking me so i said sure okay well i'll i'll, I'll make the web page for you um uh and i want uh, $5000 and that was for me an outrageous amount of money that was more than my parents probably had in life savings at that point um and, and he said done. And I was like, oh shit! Now I actually have to learn how to how to create this web page um, and design it. And uh, so I did, and he was very happy. And then you know, a few weeks after completing that project, someone else knocked on my door and said, "Hey, I heard you helped my friend here with a web page. I was wondering if you could do the same." And fast forward to that, uh, I was basically running an illegal sweatshop in my high school where I had all my friends who were really good at math. I taught uh, HTML and all my friends that were really good in arts. I uh, taught Photoshop uh, and we had this new computers in school, ironically donated by Bill Gates Um, early on. um, He had this thing where he took like, um, you know, uh, schools that were in particularly rough neighborhoods, uh, which mine was, um, and donated new computer equipment. And so these are all new computers, all sort of um, 100 megabits internet connection. And so that was like the perfect first office for my my uh, thing. Uh, so that that's kind of how I started my entrepreneurial journey. But even then, even as I was doing all these things, I didn't think about it as business. I thought about it more as like, well, wow, we're building projects here. And we're making money doing it. And that money we can reinvest in buying servers and doing other cool projects. Um, And it was only until I almost went bankrupt uh, until I realized that, you know, hey, I'm actually running a real business here where real people's livelihood are depending on what I do. And I need to learn how to do this. And I need to be serious about it uh, because sort of just being the tech guy uh, who builds stuff and don't bother about anything else, just didn't scale anymore.
0: So you sold uh, some companies or you had like a handful of different projects and they sold and you made a couple million bucks. Uh, And I think what was was interesting for me to hear, and I would love to hear your perspective on this, is everyone thinks they're working to some end right of which they have millions of dollars in the bank account and therefore they're successful they have this exit their friends that they've hired make money and all of that but i heard you say that that was actually more depressing than potentially having to lay off your friends uh or like going through the whole entrepreneurial journey with your first company because you were a little aimless. And now what do I do? Right. And I have this money and I've been working to this end, but it wasn't as fulfilling as maybe you thought it was going to be. And that I think ultimately led to Spotify, right. Combining two interests that you had together. So can can you talk about or tell that story of like what it felt like to have made millions of dollars and actually be even more depressed than you were before?
1: yeah sure and and so just to tie tie the two stories together so uh, what happened obviously is um, uh, my businesses that I thought of as projects kind of grew and grew and grew from nineteen ninety seven onwards to two thousand and two thousand and one and then the bubble burst, and almost everything froze overnight and that's when I had to lay off a bunch of friends and hunker down um, and we kind of took whatever projects uh, or whatever thing anyone needed help with. So we basically became consultants overnight, doing whatever anyone needed help with just to survive with whoever I had left as employees. And then uh, through a series of luck, really, what ended up happening, and this shows how little I knew about business, uh, sometimes people couldn't pay me uh, because they ran into financial difficulties. And they gave me something called equity, uh, which I didn't realize what it was. I thought it was literally that people would pay me back once they had the money. So I thought it was like kind of a death note or something like that. And um, so they gave me equity in their firms. And so I didn't really understand um, you know, what, what it meant. And I never assumed anyone could pay me back. So, I kept accumulating that and I became disappointed every time someone couldn't pay me and got equity. And I got very lucky because one of the firms I got equity in, um, um, you know, and I remember it very clearly. So, the market kind of turned around the eBay acquisition of uh, Skype. Um, so, that's 2004, I believe, 2005, around that time timeframe, um, where between 2000 and 2004 and 2005, if you were in the internet era, we, Forgot about it long since, but it was like the worst of the worst. There was no money available. No one wanted to do anything. And everyone looked at you like you were pariah. I can imagine, might be a little bit like if you're in the crypto community at the present moment. That's kind of what it felt like. No one wanted to touch you. Um, And... uh, So it was really rough. And then everything kind of turned from one night to to the other. There was new optimism. Um, Companies were like, holy shit, this internet thing might be real. We got to step up our game. And one of the businesses um, um, that I had been involved in gave me some equity. And uh, they called me up one day um, and said, hey, um, um, uh, we're going to get acquired. um, And this is really great news. And I said, Well, you know, that's great. Congrats. Uh and um uh, the guy was kind of uh, confounded and were like, Well, aren't aren't you happy? And I said, Yeah, sure. Um uh, I'm, I'm very happy for you. This is great. He probably didn't really um, you know, he was still confounded why why I didn't wasn't more happy and why I didn't understand it. And honestly, I I I didn't even realize he would pay me back. I thought it was just like he called me up and, and was just a happy person. And um, so I didn't think much more about it until like, you know, a week or two later, um, someone from my bank called me up and uh, said, hey, uh, what do you want us to do with the money? And I had no idea. Um, so I was like, well, um, and and I figured then that maybe the guy just paid b- back the debt. And I was like, well, that's great. You can just leave it in the account, um, I said and um um the the person then from from the bank was like well we 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 would advise against that so this is like a large sum and you really should invest it and so on and i was like well you know um really um what what, what are we talking about here and i said well uh it's a few million dollars here and i was like what um, there must be something wrong and um and literally um you know, no, uh, it was all right. And, and that was the equity and and that was great. And then within a series of events, I actually sold two other businesses in the next six months, and not for great sums of money, but I own 100% of them. So it ended up accumulating. Um, and actually one of these companies I sold, I sold to my co-founder of Spotify, uh, his company. And um, yeah, so I, I literally went from kind of having no money at all, uh, basically just trying to survive to six months later, having more money than I knew uh, what to do with. And actually, I'd read somewhere that if you had $5 million, you were economically independent uh, for the rest of your life. And I, by that time, accumulated more than that. Um, And you're 22, right? At the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was exactly twenty-two. This is the
0: this is the dream, right? You've made it. Yeah, uh, you should be as happy as as anyone. This is what everyone aspires to. Yeah, exactly right.
1: And 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 for me, it was like even more so because I I literally came from the projects in Sweden. Like I had no money at all. I, I was growing up with my single mom and. On top of that, I had this winter where I I sort of between 2000 and 2004 and five, where things were really rough. Like you were basically just trying to survive paycheck to paycheck and doing whatever jobs you could to pay your rent, basically. And so obviously, I had this kind of uh, dream of one day, maybe I can get to this level. And I thought maybe if I work really hard, I can get there. If, you know, if I'm lucky 50 and then I'm going to retire and so on and so forth. And obviously here I was 22. And i I reached that milestone, and um, and and it sounds perhaps a little bit sort of obnoxious to say it, but as a society we're we're fighting to get to that limit limit of economic independence, uh, but no one actually talks about what happens when you get there. Um, instead, you're just hearing from these rich people how like money doesn't mean that much, uh, and so on. Well, it certainly does if you have none. I can tell you that. Um, and and they don't really teach you what to, to do and what what actually matters so it feels like a very foreign concept um, where you're like um you know you're you're thinking that they say that out of, out of a sort of false humility when when in fact you know uh they're probably very happy about having it and and they probably are to a certain extent but to a certain extent they were right but no one taught you that and and for me um you know as a, a funny sort of side note i actually learned how to speak english through watching mtv and um uh, and and my favorite program at that time was like yo mtv which is the rap uh, part um and so you watch mtv cribs and you watch kind of a, all of these like great places that that these rappers are living in and rock stars are living in and and it's always these kind of well uh filled fridges with like all the drinks in different colors and like all that stuff um and and so uh i was like you know i made it this this is the life so now i'm finally going to be able to get to the really cool nightclubs i'm going to get all the girls that I could never get beforehand and i'm going to be one of the cool people and i i thought literally for a while that that would make me happy and so i spent a bunch of time doing that spring champagne and people um in central stockholm i um uh, you know, uh, try to hook up with the girls I could never get before, somewhat embarrassingly. And some of them, um, you could actually succeed with. Um, but I realized, um, that, you know, they didn't want me for me. Um, they wanted me for the status that it provided. And because I probably, uh, offered them free champagne and, and, uh, hung around the cool people. And I realized many of these people probably wouldn't be there unless I had money. And, um, that, Got me to be pretty depressed because again I didn't get into tech to get rich in the first place, um, and and I uh, you know it wasn't one of the things that made me happy um, either. So t- tech in itself made me happy, music made me happy, and so I I went on a number of months of soul searching of what I really wanted to do, and I realized uh, up until that point in my life there's basically been two interests in my life: one was music, and one was technology and um i um, um I was thinking about that and and during the same time I met my co founder uh, and we started spending more time because he had just left the company that acquired my other company, and we started hanging out together, and he had made an i p o and he made even more money than I made um by by an order of magnitude more and uh he too was quite depressed because he too didn't have anything really that tied it up tied him up, and so we talked about maybe we should do something new, maybe we should do something. Um, that, um, you know, is different. And what we centered around was really these three core concepts. Um, you know, we wanted to do something that we thought, um, you know, we could get passionate by. Uh, we wanted to do it with people we could learn from. And three, we wanted um, to um, have fun while doing it uh, and have a positive impact in the world. Those were the kind of three things. Um, and... He said, what, what what are you really passionate about? And I said, well, really, I'm passionate about music and technology. That's that's my two kind of main passions. And he said, well, why, why don't we do that? And I said, well, that's a really dumb idea um, because, you know, it's music piracy, it's really hard and so on. And then he kept asking why, you know, okay, well, why is it hard? Uh, why is piracy such a big problem? And um, basically through these series of why, uh, we eventually said, well, maybe if you did this, you could sort it out. Well, why isn't someone doing it that like that way? And I said, well, probably labels are going to be very hard. Okay, well, why is that if they're losing so much money uh, as it is? Shouldn't they be interested in doing it? And eventually, we centered on the idea of Spotify for all of those reasons.
0: And I know constraints, you're a big believer in constraints breeding like excellence and opportunity and all of that. And so... You, the constraint for for you all was actually the geographic constraint right you had to start in a narrow market and there was a ton of piracy and so the music labels were willing to say hey fuck it like <laughs> this market's broken anyway it's a small market let's let them let them try can can you talk a little bit about constraints as a benefit to you and spotify
1: yeah sure and 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 perhaps this wasn't um, as obvious from from the beginning for me. Um, so you were like, I don't want to be in a $20 million Tam or whatever. (laughs) I don't know what the market would have been, but yeah. Yeah. And, and so we tried to launch Spotify actually globally everywhere because that's what we thought an internet company should look like. And, um, it's ironic because we only realized that portion 15 years later, two years ago, um, when we locked the rest of the markets. So, um, um, but we stumble upon a very important insight, which is that um, um, growing in concentric circles is incredibly powerful. And in my opinion, when I look at startups today, I would say almost every single uh, successful startup has followed that formula, where where they've started off uh, self-constraining themselves, focusing and honing on uh, developing their craft and being really, really precise. Because it's really hard To make a product for 500 million people because 500 million people have a lot of different opinions about things and what makes a great product. Um, But you have to start with sort of a core set of customers and solving a critical problem for them, basically reducing the time it takes from point A to point B in a pretty material way. And so we started in Sweden, and as you said, for a number of reasons, it it was sort of the perfect market because you had broadband penetration, which back in 2008, 2006, actually, when we started, wasn't a very normal thing. Um, And by 2008, still wasn't very normal. Um, And because people had access to very fast broadband uh, connections, they used a lot of piracy services to get their content. Um it also was a place where iTunes was late to launch in because again it wasn't a very large market, so they they prioritized other markets before that, so there really wasn't much uh, other solutions that was there and 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 then um from a business model standpoint, there was a lot more willingness from labels that we were dependent on to launch this to innovate because frankly they didn't have much else of of options uh, other than you know, the continuous decline of their, their, um, their business. So, so uh, we stumbled upon that, but it, it is actually something that I've been ever since, uh, whenever we do something, uh, it's something that I've been constantly um, pushing on the teams that I work with, whether it's at Spotify or, or my elder ventures at this point, it's just always kind of staying very, very consistent and close and self-constraining our growth, so to speak. Um, And just as an an analogy, I just recently launched a healthcare business called Nico, And and we launched it here in Sweden too. And and the way we did that was we kind of controlled everything, uh, but we self-constrained it to one physical location. Um, And uh, that meant meant that literally, unless you're in central Stockholm, there's no way to try the product. And uh, many may say, well, you know, wouldn't have been better to launch it in the U.S. because it's a much larger market, and so on. And and actually, uh, for a number of reasons, I I believe uh, Sweden might be even better because you have a situation where no one pays for healthcare today, so it's a, a, an even harder problem to solve. Um, but the the benefit is uh, in Stockholm, it's a very large uh, concentration of people at a relatively small surface, so it, it helps from that sort of venn diagram of opportunity and constraints in terms of um tam as well to be just very concise
0: yeah it's interesting it's one of the things i actually give advice about when people are starting podcasts and i i made this mistake everyone makes this mistake is you want to get the biggest guests initially and you want to be broad and copy you know so that as many people will listen to it as possible and one, you suck when you initially start. Like a hundred percent, you're just yep. you're just shitty at asking questions. Your your audio is going to be off, whatever it is. And two, you're wasting your bullets on great people early on. And three, your interests aren't going to be aligned with uh, a target market. Right? If I if I just interviewed everyone I wanted to talk to, yep. it's not. No one else has the exact same interests I do. And so I have a ton of respect. And this was the mistake I made. And I, I, but uh, all the podcasts that started very narrow, be it uh, the Acquired Guys or, or Lex mm-hmm. Friedman or Patrick O'Shaughnessy or all them. You get the right to expand after you have yep. some success in the middle, yep. right? Yep. And, and like, so define your market very narrowly. Lenny does a great job with his product podcast, which I know mm-hmm. your co-founder went on, where it's like start really narrow, make sure you appeal to that narrow group, and then you can deviate to this to the yep. areas to the left and right. And yep. I think it's true of companies, it's true of, you know, media, it's true of whatever, right? It's an interesting uh, interesting lesson for sure.
1: Yeah, and and I I, th- I think it's, uh, you know, you can even apply it to investing, right? Like uh, your circle of competence is usually a lot more narrow than you think it is, right? And uh, by narrowing yourself, you're going to get higher signal, you're going to learn uh, faster and better, and you can expand over time. But, but trying to, you know, go for everything uh, probably means you're going to, be pretty average. Product.
0: And you can always deviate, right? I tell people I only do series B, mostly B2B investments. And is that all mm-hmm. I do? No, that's not all I do. But like mm-hmm. people have to think of you for something. And so yeah. better to narrow what they think of you for. And then you can, by exception, go elsewhere, right? It's just a much easier framework by which to operate. Um, hey, one question in the early days of Spotify I had from you, and I'm not sure how much this is like a metaphorical story versus a, uh, a real one. But I've heard about you sleeping outside of record labels offices. And mm. I'm wondering, like, quite literally, were you inside their building and and uh, in front of their doors? Is this like one of those stories that yeah. is, gets retold? And it's it's like, uh, maybe an allegory, but was it yeah. actually like, how did that how did that actually come to be?
1: No, I I didn't actually sleep outside of them, <laughs> uh, 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 outside of their offices. Uh it, it's more of a sort of expression uh and a, a sort of mental uh analogy as you said or or an allegory. Um but but the the just to paint the picture, I literally slept in hotels where the the wallpaper fell down on me and I had cockroaches everywhere like not one of these finer Five star hotels or even four stars. I think I had minus one star hotels. Um, so and and uh, there's funny stories in the beginning where I and the guy who helped negotiate the licenses we even shared bed um, and and uh, bed covers because literally and he was snoring horribly so we didn't sleep very much. Um, so so that's a uh, sort of painting the picture. But what was true is I literally sat outside of the office waiting for opportunities to arrive where I could come in and pitch because they, they wouldn't take the meetings. Um, and so I took whatever slots I could get. And the best way was to sit. Uh, they had a Starbucks just outside of, of, of a uh, Broadway in this case uh, in New York. And I literally sat uh, outside of that um uh, a Starbucks, uh, which was right on the border, and uh, I befriended uh, the assistants to the point by giving them enough free coffee and and uh, free uh, gifts and uh, and other things that I whatever I could do to bribe them basically, uh, so that they would tell me when when the CEO was about to leave or about to enter or if they had sort of a spare moment where I sort of just by accident would be next to the coffee machine as they were getting the coffee, so. Um, there, it was directionally true, although it wasn't technically true that I slept outside of the
0: office. What kept you going through that period of time? Because I know there was like two and a half years of, of chewing glass, essentially. And was it just that you were uniquely passionate? You knew that your life's work would ideally combine music and technology. And so, hey... Uh, I'm going to keep going ahead on this? Or, or what What really kept you motivated through that period?
1: Well, I, I think a combination of, of really several things, but but the, the m- most important thing is it was totally logical to me that whether I succeeded or someone else has succeeded, people would want to access music um, and uh, they would want a better experience than piracy. And if there was a better experience than piracy, people would start paying for music again. That was just so obvious to me. Um, and this whole idea of like people wanting to own music uh that the whole world believed to be true just felt to me like no it's kind of obvious that the better products should be access uh to music and and so I believed that at the core of my bones and if we weren't going to succeed doing it, someone else would uh, that was clear to me, and that gave me a lot of uh of just mental fortitude um to go on because I believed it to be true and um it was a lot of uh, ups and downs. And, and the truth is, I believe every startup journey is a mental roller coaster. And um, I believe now, perhaps more than ever before, that the, what really sets apart the great entrepreneurs from, from uh, the average ones uh, are how, is really how you handle that mental roller coaster. And I believe so much more now that most people just don't want to do what's necessary. Um, to succeed at that level, And it is really hard, and I, I I don't blame them. But it's like you have to give up um, birthdays, friendships, uh, family relationships, uh, all of the above. Um, oftentimes, are required, and it's very hard. Uh, people talk about balance. I don't I don't believe that to be true. Uh, you should absolutely strive to have healthy relationships because you'll perform better, and you you'll strive should strive. To obviously having love in your life, because I believe you you'll be a better person. But to have balance of like equal, uh, you know, time on on, on everything, I, I, that's not been my experience. In in fact, I oftentimes even today feel awful because I'm down prioritizing something in my life because I'm pretty extreme. Um, sometimes that's my health. Sometimes that's a friendship relationship. Sometimes that's work because I'm prioritizing a personal part of myself. But I always feel almost inadequate because I'm constantly putting so much effort into uh, so many parts um, in a pretty extreme way. And, and um, um, that's two, uh, two and a half years of my life, I gained probably 45 pounds in weight. Uh, so I really wasn't feeling very well. Uh, I lost a lot of hair, still haven't been able to grow it back. It was just an awful, awful, awful time. Um, and I wanted to give up several times, but I also had my team and my team was fighting and they were making the product more and more amazing. And I was able to try it out. And I was like, wow, we, we ha- really have something special on our hand. And I didn't want to fail or disappoint them. And um, um, it so happened to be that, again, uh, I retrenched from those uh, US offices back to Sweden and kind of managed to find the wedge, my one foot in the door, uh, where um, we basically guaranteed the entire uh, profits of the entire Swedish recording music industry with our own money uh, for a year and said, you really don't have anything to lose. Uh, At best case, uh, you double your money in one year and we fail. And uh, by the way, on top of that, we have something that's ongoing at worst case, you double your money for this year and you have at least a little bit more time to figure out what the right solution is. I didn't realize that. So so piracy was such, and the original deal you made with
0: the labels was, hey, because Sweden was so uh, upside down with piracy and and people just stealing music. You said to the labels, hey, we're going to guarantee for the first year the revenue for you all to make back. And worst case, it doesn't
1: work. Best case, we have a new business. Pretty much. Pretty much, um, I, I think it wasn't one to one, but it was like eighty cents on the dollar or something. So it was basically totally uh, no downside for them, and um, and so they eventually kind of like I I, I don't know whether they actually believed uh, in it or whether they were just cynical and realized that um, you know heads I win, tails I win, um, both are kind of fine. Um, and and but uh, it, we succeeded, and what I do know is we succeeded way more than anyone thought, including ourselves. Um, and, uh, really through, through that period of time, we then kind of quickly expanded in another eight markets and started growing really rapidly from there on too. Um, and then it took another sort of two, three years to unlock the U S because it was the number one market in the world and they had still a lot to lose and a lot to win. And that's why it took so much time to, for the same behavior and for the same sort of Model to be proven out um, so much in the rest of the world that they were willing to take the same risk in the U.S. Speaking of success, so
0: you've paid out close to forty billion dollars to the music mm-hmm. industry, is that right? And yep. uh, you're the you're the biggest driver of monetization in the industry, and you've almost single handedly pulled the industry towards a model that works. And now, at least on a dollars do- dollars basis, maybe not inflation adjusted, but dollars to dollars, you've uh, the industry is now past the peak of what it was in uh ninety nine two thousand from from those days, the good old days yep. but um does it bother you? You're still kind of vilified at times from people that don't understand how like what all
1: you've done does that does that get under your skin um it, it it doesn't it doesn't to be very candid um so i i th- i think on the one hand obviously you know i did this not because i thought we could make a ton of money uh doing this we've actually widely sur- surpassed what i thought uh in the, in that regard but um um i did this because i cared about the problem right i cared about music and i cared about compensating artists uh fairly um and i cared about uh giving consumers what they wanted um And so obviously it hurts when you have artists um, who I deeply respect and admire for doing what they're doing um, say that they think that I somehow um, or that we somehow want um, to cause harm to them because it's just not the truth at all. And, and we're doing that, but um, you know, I also um, have, you know, in, in this process uh, I, I, I mentioned that earlier, but I, I think a lot about the mental game these days. Um, and oftentimes, whenever I see someone who's lashing out to another person, I I try to have empathy with what they're going through. Um, and uh, you know, there's always someone who's hurting. You know, there's always someone whose story um, exists on the other side, and you don't know that. You don't know what they've gone through. You don't know what their reality may look like. And so I try to have empathy with that. And the reality is, of the of the music industry, it's a very complex narrative. And the narrative is, as as you rightly said, there the music industry overall is doing well. It's doing better than it's probably ever done before. Uh, certainly, the recorded music industry and um, it's at at its all time high, and its all time profits from these rec- record companies, etc. And more artists than ever are being invested in. So that's the good news, but uh, we're also dealing in a reality where, if you look at 1999 or uh, or year 2000, which probably, arguably, the two of them was the peak of the recorded music industry in terms of the the last peak. You had probably 10,000 or so albums being released in the U.S. that year. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but order of magnitude, that's probably right, and then. If you contrast that today, uh, Spotify has about 10 million artists uh, on our platform. And and so the best way to put it is there's more success now than ever before, but there's also more people than ever trying um, to make it in music. And so both of these th- two things can be true at the same time. There could also be more people being successful, but there could be in relative terms, more people failing also. And so, or in absolute terms and even in relative terms. So I, I think that there's a lot of people who pre- may have in the past made it in music, but are no longer you know, uh, doing as well. And they obviously feel bad about that situation. Um, and there's also, also a lot of people that want to make it in music that for whatever reason may not be successful in music. And because we're the number one player in music, obviously um, a lot of responsibility falls on us, um, rightly or unrightly, um, for the role that we play in the music industry for them to succeed. And, and these are people who may have spent 10, 20, 30 years perfecting their crafts. Um, and many of them, by the way, are great at that. And it's really hard when, when uh, but, it, but it's a very hard game to succeed in, right? Uh, I, I sometimes make the analogy to uh, another one of my favorite sports, soccer, you know, it's 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 a very popular sport. Um, several hundred million people around the world are playing soccer in one shape or form, but there's probably only tens of thousands of them that are professional, right? So it's so, you know, on the one hand, um uh, we have a lot of artists here that are trying to make it in music, more so probably than ever before in the history of time. There are more that's succeeding, but there's still a lot of people that are not. And so those are usually the ones that you know, uh, are unhappy and I get it. And I understand it. And many of them are also very talented by the way. And so it's, it's really tough when, when, when they feel like they can't make it. And obviously, uh, we become a big part of that debate because we're so big.
0: And there's two components, I guess, just to give people a quick primer on why these complaints maybe, uh, come out is one back in 99, 2000, it was a lump sum payment uh, from a CD, right? Versus you guys are paying out like an annuity over time. And so Mm -hmm. your your long tail, that's why you're seeing people sell back catalogs is because they want to monetize it up front, but uh, an investor is willing to wait for the next 20 years to monetize that. So one is the cash flow cycle. The other one is you uh, have you pay out a percentage of your revenue to the to the labels, which is mostly the three majors, and then they and that's based on the number of, number of streams and the the your business model, right? And that's a percentage yep. of your revenue, and yep. then the labels pay out whatever uh, their deals they cut with their artists mm-hmm. are. They pay out that to the artists. And so you've negotiated this thing with the labels. The complaint is ultimately uh, to some extent, it's with the labels, right? Of like the deals that they cut uh, with the artists individually, you cut the deals with the labels. And so it's like, uh, there's this middleman in the middle that people are pointing at you when in truth, this is the deal that the artists
1: have often cut with the labels themselves. Is that fair? yeah well that's sometimes part of the story um and it's very complex right because there there's all sorts of other things too with songwriters it's even more complicated because you may be signed to a publishing company or there may be a collecting society and a certain market and some collecting societies takes 18 months before they pay it out so you may think you have a certain amount of streams but uh, in actuality and you see no revenue but the revenue comes 18 months later as you said so, so there's all sorts of very complicated dynamics um, from an industry that for legacy reasons been built up over many decades. And, and that's hard. Uh, and that's a hard part of, of the story. The other one is pure optics, right? Oftentimes, even though exactly as you said, we, we don't pay out per stream. We pay, pay out on a percentage basis. But quite oftentimes what people do is in order to figure out, well, you know, how much was I getting was they take the number of streams and take the revenue and divide it on a per stream basis. And then uh, the number seems very low because it's point something something, uh, you know, cents uh, per stream. Um, but I, I think the failure there is like, this is the equivalent to CPM. The, the And this is probably where we could have done better from an optical point of view. Um, you know, originally you were probably uh, getting paid for every single impression Um but we we don't in the ad world uh, you know measure it based on what you're getting paid for every impression but we we bottle it up to a CPM and that CPM could be variable so it's thousand impression that sort of adds it up and so uh we still optically um screw it up in the sense that we make the number seem lower than what it perhaps is um and so there's all, the, all of those things that kind of add up uh, to it. But I would still say the, the number one problem that's the most confusing to people is, um, you know, there, there, there are more people successful than ever before in music, but there's also more people trying. So therefore, there's also more people failing at becoming successful in music. And so both of these things are true at the same time. And that's what people ha- are having such a hard time because they see these anecdotal things of on Twitter and artists saying, well, I only get paid X for what seems like a large amount, a million streams. But a million streams is actually a very, very low amount of streams. Like the most successful uh, artists on Spotify are, are literally, you know, a Miley Cyrus that can get a billion streams in, in, in the matter of weeks, uh, right? So um, a million streams over the course of a year is just not... Um, uh, a big number uh, in the case of Spotify. And so that's also, you know, it seemingly seems a big number, but it just isn't, so that's the optics. And those two th- things are, are are why it's such a difficult problem to explain to people.
0: Now I've heard you say you spent time trying to copy different elements of iconic CEOs, Gates or Jobs or Musk or who, whoever it was, uh, but ultimately you realized you needed to be yourself and that that it didn't really work internalizing elements of other people. How do you think about uh taking elements that you've heard from how someone that's super successful has operated while also following your own North Star or what is authentic to Daniel Eck as a leader, as a CEO? Yeah,
1: I mean, I I I think about um quite often this quote um by I believe he's a philosopher Kwame Appiah, and he he says um, uh, you know. Uh, most people are spending uh, time figuring out uh, to basically, um, I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's basically uh, trying to learn the rules of the game instead of figuring out which game they're playing. Um, and that was the most important realization for me. You know, uh, we all obviously take um, impression from the the Gates, the Musk's, the Bezos, the, the Zuckerbergs of, of the world of tech. And they've been remarkably successful and they're very, very good at what they do. Um, but they're also, um, in many instances, playing a very different game than the one you're playing, right? And that's what I I realized is you can't just copy someone's tactics without understanding what game they're playing and what game you're playing. Um, and And trying to go to sort of first principle of just understanding who do I want to be and and what's important to me, back to that sort of mental side of things. Um, and who am I at the core of, a, of an individual? You talked about sort of social media. One of the big things for me um, that I see time and time again is that um, at, at the end of the day, people see right through when you're not authentic because you can't stay consistent uh, in whatever game you're you're playing on social media if you're not uh, authentic to who you are as an individual. And that's really hard because people obviously uh, game you in the sense that they'll give you feedback of what they think uh, works. And and we want to be um, liked as individuals. So we try to amplify those uh, behaviors. And social media does that even more. And at the core of it... Um, I think it's a very easy way for young people and, and honestly all people to to get very unhappy about life is because we keep seeing these re- rewarding pictures of the perfect life that everyone else is leading without actually understanding that the authentic story probably isn't that. The authentic story is probably that they uh, have a bad hair day sometimes They have uh, argued with their significant others. They have kids that are screaming and uh, refusing to go to bed, all the normal stuff. But what we see is this perfect thing, and that's what people are are reacting to. Um, And more and more, I think uh, that authenticity is the only thing that uh, will allow you to persevere for, for not just a year or two, but a decade or two. And so the big realization for me was, just working with myself, my own um, uh, mentality, my own psychology, my own being, um, back to that point uh, about me believing I wanted to be popular, me believing I, I wanted affirmation from these girls that could never um, get uh, to pay attention to me before, I, I realized that that just wasn't who I was um, as an individual. I'm, I'm I'm a nerd. I like reading. I, I don't like um, spending time with lots of people. Um, I like a few um, friends that I have intimate relationships to, Um, you know, in large crowds, I I get inwardly focused or it drains me of energy. Not that I don't think it could be fun, but I have to lie down and rest after doing it. Um, And uh, there are other people obviously that get energy from being in crowds um, and love meeting other people. And uh, I think those are the realizations that you have to work with, and so, of course, I take elements and I learn from all the greats, not just in technology, but more and more uh, from all over all, all over the map in in other fields um, as well. But um, I I tried to um, most of the time uh, think from first principles about what it is I want to achieve, and then turn whatever. Don't copy them exactly, but kind of take the spirit of of um, what it is that you're trying to do and adjust it to my game. And, and that's how I think about it. The remix, the Daniel Eck remix.
0: Yeah. One what, what, what of the more um, uh, poignant things I heard you talk about is being very self-aware of uh, your role within a company and as a leader and within meetings and being cognizant that if someone's presenting to you it might be the one time a year that they get to meet you, or maybe their entire tenure of Spotify. This could be the yeah. only time they get in front of you. And yeah. your role in meetings and also in social gatherings that you used to maybe gravitate to a handful of people that you knew just because you were comfortable there, but realizing that you actually had to go talk to the people you didn't know because that mm-hmm. was your your role. How do you, How do you think about your natural bias to do some of the things that come naturally to you versus your role either in meetings or leading and doing the unnatural because it's going to be very impactful to the individuals in, in that specific meeting or in that room or at that party or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think the, the important part, again, is uh, on the one hand, as I said, staying true to yourself and the polarity of that obviously is in what way can you be the most impactful um, and constantly kind of uh, um sort of peddling between those two extremes um but but it, it it actually started when i was really unhealthy and and um i was lucky enough that uh one of my neighbors became uh, or is at this point still a very famous uh, hockey player uh, his name is matt sundin He's, he was uh an all-star NHL American uh, team captain of Toronto Maple Leaf for 13 sec- seasons, uh, play, always playing in the all-star game. And um, uh, we were talking one, one night over dinner, and um, he talked to me about sort of training and, um, you know, uh, and, and it got me to sh- change my perspective because he talked about the reason why he trained so much and, and why he could keep at the level uh where he was for 13 seasons wasn't to get better. It was to make sure that his his worst was consistently better than everyone else. And um, so it was like basically raising the average bar rather than sort of raising the bar of the extreme. And I, I thought about that a lot, um, and so for me, what I realized was uh, that there was times when I had a lot of energy, uh, when I I was great in meetings, um, but there was also times when I was completely drained, and and I wasn't adding anything to the meeting, and and I probably I was grumpy or or all of those different things. And I started taking my own um, well-being, um, not just mental health, but physical health, eating, uh, exercising, all those things for. Um, and learning from mats basically, just making sure my my worst day I would still be better than most, and showing up in that meeting with more energy, being able to make people feel good, um, because so much of what it is that I do, I have many thousands of employees here at Spotify. Um, it is them that's doing the works. It's not me. And 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 my my job quite often is um, to get to the positions where. All the good options are are out the window. And we only have uh, decisions where huge trade-offs uh, are needed in. And to bring that A um, team mentality out of people in that moment by getting their best ideas, getting them to be there, but feel seen, feel heard, um, and feel like they can participate. And I'm not always succeeding with that, by the way. I'm, I'm failing quite a lot of the time. But I realized, you know, it's it's... And I'm 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 not the smartest person in the room um I'm definitely not and uh I realized my my goal is to bring the smartness out of other people in in those meetings and um um that means um creating an environment where people can be uh direct where people feel seen where they feel validated and so I've learned so much about leadership um from that, and I just reference again from the world of sports. Uh, so it's not always from people in business, um, but I think it's 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 my game. And I know other leaders, by the way, uh, in business people that the sole goal is is for them to be the driving force and lightning rod uh, in a meeting. Um, and and most of the time they're having in a group meeting with. Ten people—it's actually them interacting with one people at a time, and the meeting's really for them, not for for all the people around them. And I—I I, I don't say that that's uh, wrong. I'm saying that could work for them and their individual. But in my case, I—I I look at myself as the bottom of the pyramid, helping everyone else get things done, not at the very top of the pyramid. Even though, obviously, from a hierarchical sense, I am um, obviously at the top. But uh, I'm trying to enable other people to do. Their best work and and it's through that that I think we'll achieve amazing
0: results. I know as a CEO and a leader, you have a philosophy around missions, both for yourself and also for your executives, and that people might be the right people for a certain point in time, but that they may not be the long term person. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about that for yourself and reevaluating what you need to be for the mission that you're on at that moment in time and also how you have that conversation with executives or, or direct reports, saying, "Hey, this could be the job for you for the next two years, but after that, we might need to bring in someone else."
1: Yeah, sure, and and maybe just a level set. I'm I'm not saying this is necessarily true for all all companies, but but I certainly think it's been true here for Spotify. So I, I believe one of the very unique things about startups is is the rate uh, that you have to learn, basically. So so a, a startup founder, a CEO, um, in many instances are trying to learn on the job things, and maybe sometimes they have six months to learn what other people learn in two or three years at a time. And because of the nature of growth um, in their business, um, the challenges that get thrown at their table, it happens much faster Um then, then, it would take like a business that's growing at five or ten percent a year. You know, they may have plenty of more time to accumulate um, those experiences and learn on the job than a startup CEO does. And I, 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 shamelessly stole this concept from from Reid Hoffman, um, where he he at LinkedIn uh, supposedly had this concept called tour of duties. Um, you know, uh, based on on the U.S. military. I didn't really like the military reference, so I called it missions instead. Um, but my, my belief was that if you really think about it, uh, as a CEO, as a CFO, as a VP of product, uh, certainly in a startup, but it's very rare that uh, whatever requirements you have for your jobs are gonna last for more than two or three years. And the problem you end up having is by not being clear that it's not the person's fault um, you know, and, and, and this can go both ways. You could, the person can develop and the job uh, develops in a different direction. And obviously the job can develop and the person wants to keep doing the same thing. Both in a, uh, a world of startup is actually a big problem because if you have the expectancy that my, the job is mine for all eternity, no matter what the job spec actually requires, even though the title's the same, that just feels wrong. And, uh, it is not. In, in this instance, that you as a CEO, if you have an employee where you have to have that tough conversation, that you're necessarily forcing that on them, it could be the startup in itself that just requires something very different uh, from you as a leader. So I think that's been a helpful mental uh, framework um, to explain to people why that is and why the job changes, but the titles remain the same and And the harder thing though is culturally really enacting that because it's so unusual. Um, And I think the best way to do that is obviously by role modeling that yourself. And so in my case, what I often say is I've had the same title uh, for now uh, close to 17 years. It's pretty crazy. Um, But uh, I'm on my probably eighth job uh, at the moment. And, And actually my newest job started in January. Um, so, um, I handed off the reins from much of my day-to-day responsibility to, uh, to my core people, Gustav, who runs product and technology and Alex, who now runs the business side. And so my role is vastly different, uh, than it's been. And I'm actually still trying to learn on the job, what, what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do in my new role, role description. Um, and it has two benefits. I think it, it's it means that new opportunities will be created. Um, so and Alex and Gustav, they've been with me 12 and 14 years respectively. So they've been with me for a very long period of time. I am 100% certain that if they were really doing the same jobs um, like they were when they got to the company, they wouldn't have stayed. So, so this creates growth opportunities for them, but it also creates a very clear path where you can have very honest conversations with people and talk about what they want to do in their career and whether or not um, that matches what that next evolution of that role uh, looks like at your company, or perhaps there might be other roles at the company that's always beneficial. So I like to think about, let's see if we can create the job internally first, and then only if that doesn't work, then you start looking at, maybe it's time to look sort of externally for the same job. And the harshest way um, to do it would be almost asking people to reapply to the same job again. I I don't formally do that, but but um, I like checking in with people to kind of see: Do you really still want this job? Um, and and does that make sense? Um, and and yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge part of why I'm here, 17 years later, because my job uh, keeps changing. Um, and yes, it's been the same title for quite a while, but my day to day responsibilities today is very different. My first job was kind of being the janitor, um, you know, screwing together tables and and chairs and all that stuff. Uh, there's a whole team at Spotify that does that now. So I'm lucky enough to just show up and the whole space looks beautiful. And I sit down in furniture and IT equipment that just works. Um, uh, but my job today is like engaging with regulators, extern- with all the different stakeholders, dealing with very complex uh, stakeholder problems, whether they are employees and unions and all all what it requires dealing with very complex um uh, you know how to, what does it take to run a platform with five hundred million consumers and tens of millions of creators, very different challenges uh, where even a small change in that platform you can't make that uh, thing when you have an entire music industry that's totally dependent on every single tweak that you make. So you can't sort of move fast and breaking things in that regard where obviously when you were a startup, that was kind of what you needed to do. So very different job, um, very intriguing and intellectually challenging. Um, And I probably wouldn't have been ready for the job I'm having now uh, 17 years ago, Um, but it's kept it interesting and I've been able to grow with the company. Now,
0: you've been fairly outspoken about Apple and the App Store practices uh, in the last couple months. I know it's been an ongoing thing for you all. How much has that been something that you feel for your own business, you have to speak out about what they're doing and favoring their own products and all the maybe uh, monopolistic tactics they're doing? And those are my words, not yours. I I don't want to put words in your mouth. That's my perspective. Yeah. Uh, versus you're in a unique position to be able to speak out for all the companies that can't because yeah. they're so
1: beholden to Apple well I I think it's both right um, so obviously we believe that our business would have done tremendously much better if we would have fought on a level playing field uh, and it feels like we are instead uh, having to innovate and fight for our business with our hands tied behind the back Now, we're still winning and we're still kicking their ass. And I feel good about that, but we could have succeeded um, and we could have benefited the music industry and creators a lot more. And there's still lots of innovation that we're constantly being um, you know, hampered by. So a great example is when we wanted to innovate on behalf of um, authors uh, in the audiobook industry. And truthfully, uh, what we had in mind was something uh, that was a lot better than what we ended up launching in the end uh, because Apple kept blocking us. So um, that's on on one end. We're constantly uh, we're we're succeeding in music anyway, but where all the future innovation is being hamstrung by by this. But more importantly, as you said, not just for the entire ecosystem, but coming back to my fourteen year old self um, and the principles and values that attracted me to the internet and wanting to build things on the internet was that it was this completely open place. It was this place where this kid from, um, you know, basically the projects in Stockholm was able to compete on similar um, terms that everyone else uh, was able to do. And I truly believed that because of things like net neutrality and all those things that we fought, fought for, In the late 90s, um, I believe the best ideas weren't. And it was very hard for someone to use their size as an advantage. We saw it all the time. Startups was constantly beating the bigger companies. Um, It happened all the time. It doesn't happen as often anymore. Um, And that's, I think, really problematic. And part of that reason is um, because of the situation that we're in. Um, basically, uh, in this case, we have most of the internet now is being accessed through smartphones, which is two different platforms by two different companies. And one of these companies have decided to basically tax that entire, uh, ecosystem with 30%. And in our case, that happens to be more than what we're currently making. So we would, uh, if we really followed what they would like to, we, we would have two options. We would either be loss making business in perpetuity with uh, negative units economics, uh, which means we would be bankrupt, or we would have to raise prices. And if we raise prices, uh, they would take more than we would from that price increase. But more importantly than that, um, they also have a a competitive product, which they obviously don't have to pay the same price points. So they would be able to bleed us dry. And so I look at it and I think I'm not just fighting for for Spotify's case, but I'm I'm fighting for what type of future of the internet we want. And I want one where the best ideas win. I want one where everyone's competing on equal terms. And to be clear, I don't um, mind that Apple has an app store. And by the way, they can charge whatever fees they wanted to if it was a possibility to not be on the app store and still have an app. Um, right? So they can charge 30% or 50%. If there was another store, I would be like, great, we're just not going to be on your store. Um, Then we'll be on another one. But maybe for some developers or something else, that price is worth paying um, to be on Apple Store. But that's not a possibility, right? And that's uh, what we're fighting for. And imagine now all the innovation, like if we wanted to sell NFTs on behalf of artists today, we would have to use Apple's IAP and pay 30% for it. That just one innovation that just honestly makes it almost not worth trying even because of all the cumbersome and all the problems. And there's so much, uh, many more examples of this, what we could do, but it'd be really hard because we'd run afoul of, of uh, Apple's draconian rules.
0: I have one last one for you, and hopefully we can get it in under the wire here, but speech. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about specifically Rogan or or Kelly or anything like that, but how do you think about speech just as a platform that can host these different uh, pr- uh, conversations on, like, what do you think your responsibility is in all of this? Uh, and h- how do you approach it?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I come back to it. We talked about the internet, right? Um, and and for me, the, the amazing things is, um, we want to enable as many voices as we can because, uh, again, Spotify is a global company with uh, creators in more than 180 markets. What's acceptable in some markets may not uh, be in others culturally. Uh doesn't mean it's illegal, but just in, in terms of socially acceptable things. Um, our view is uh, we want to enable more of these amazing creative people. Uh, if you look at something like hip hop, they use foul language to talk about things, but it's a cultural expression. Um, I don't always personally understand everything, um, the cultural references that they do. But um, I, I think uh, hip-hop culture is so important for um, you know development in our society. It's been such an important cultural uh, thing for us. So imagine if we started censoring hip-hop b- based on the lyrics it's been, Um that's just unthinkable to me, and so our, our 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 view is we want to enable more voices, not less, and obviously with that uh, with, with that said, we do care about safety right so we we do uh try to keep the balance by enabling more voices uh, by obviously creating a safe uh, platform um, as well and that's a hard balance to follow, and it's not a clear answer, uh, and it's really based on the situation, but I think speech is really important, uh, I felt like we as a society went from having sort of no rules in place for a long period of time. And then as more and more people got on the internet, we realized we needed some rules. My personal view is we went too far in the other direction and limited very important voices and speech on on topics that's super important. And um, that's why uh, in our case, uh, we take the approach of uh, enabling more uh, creative voices uh, but obviously take our responsibility of keeping our platform safe as well. Very high.
0: Daniel, thanks for doing this. I really
1: appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate fun. it.